Hello, everybody, and such a warm welcome to all of you tonight who are tuning in, whether by webcast or telephone. A very warm welcome to this 2020 inaugural chat with Zach Norris. I can't wait to have this conversation with him tonight, and it's a real honor. Of course, this is Molly Rowan Leach, and it's always an honor to be a part of these dialogues with you. So glad that you made it tonight. I know that we all have very busy lives. This conversation tonight is centered around the launch of Zach's upcoming and new book, which is potent. I can tell you that much. I've been reading it. And uh, it's called We Keep Us Safe. It has a foreword from Van Jones and um, has been endorsed by Brian Stevenson, who happened, happens to be not only of course, an extraordinary force of commitment to communities of care and to changing our systems himself, but also was Zach's former law professor, which I learned upon reading We Keep Us Safe. We Keep Us Safe, Building Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities is the topic tonight. Again, this is Molly Rowan-Leach. For the next hour, we get to have this dialogue with, with Zach and it's a part and parcel of our ongoing dialogues focusing on restorative justice and peace building and over the last 10 years. So it's extraordinary that we've had the opportunity to hear from so many incredible peace, peacemakers, peace builders, blending tangible actions on the ground, helping us rethink and shift our perspectives of some of the root and marrow of why things are failing. Um, and Zach really unpacks these, these areas throughout We Keep Us Safe. So tonight, um, before I talk about details and then we dive in with Zach, I just want to thank everybody again. This is a, a global dialogue series. Again, like I said, since 2011, Restorative Justice on the Rise was a result of witnessing firsthand the injustices of the criminal justice system and the harms and isolation that occur for all people impacted. And those impacts go way beyond just the harms themselves, as most of you probably have either experienced yourself or have seen in action as facilitators or at whatever level you're working with and or are inspired to work with in systems transformation, specific in this case, of course, to our communities and our relationships and what we call justice. Um, Restorative Justice on the Rise houses over 200 dialogues with people such as Brian Stevenson, Michelle Alexander, James O.D., who is former Amnesty International Director, Belvie Rooks, and the late Dedon Gills and so many others. And we encourage you to use our website as a community resource, pass along the dialogues, download them. They're free and open source. So just pointing your attention, if you aren't already on our e-list and haven't been to our website, there's a lot of resources there for you and for passing along to those you think might make use of them. We also wanna hear from you. So if you have people you'd like to hear from this year, please contact us and make sure, again, you're on our e-news list. Um, if you choose to hear of our updates and our upcoming podcasts, we, we love uh, making sure that you're updated. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We have a, a Facebook page there that we just started recently and a Twitter handle, RJOnRise1. So a bit about Zach, um, for those of you who may just be learning about his extraordinary life, committed to systems transformation, to, to building relationships, re rebuilding them, and um, all the work he's done with the Ella Baker Center as their executive director. Uh, just a, a quick note of the extensive work he's done. So like I said, he's the ED, executive director of the Ella, Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. He's also the co-founder of Restore Oakland, a community advocacy and training center that empowers Bay Area community members to transform local economic and justice systems and make a safe and secure future possible for themselves and for their families. 
Zach is, as mentioned, co-founder for Justice, or excuse me, he's co-founder of Justice for Families, which is a national alliance of family-driven organizations working to end our nation's youth incarceration epidemic. Zach also helped build California's first statewide network for families of incarcerated youth, which led the effort to close five youth prisons in the state, passed legislation to enable families to stay in contact with their loved ones, and defeated Prop 6, a destructive and ineffective criminal justice ballot measure. In addition to being a Harvard graduate and NYU educated attorney, Zach is also a graduate of the Labor Community Strategy Center's National School for Strategic Organizing in Los Angeles, California, and was a 2011 Soros Justice Fellow. He's a former board member at Witness for Peace and Just Cause Oakland, and is currently serving on the Justice for Families Board. Zach was a recipient of the American Constitution Society's David Carliner Public Interest Award in 2015, and is a member of the 2016 class of the Levi Strauss Foundation's Pioneers of Justice. Of course, most importantly, Zach is a loving husband and a super dedicated father of two bright daughters who he is raising in his hometown of Oakland, California. And so we're here tonight to celebrate and to acknowledge um, not only this, this new book that's launching next week, which we're going to point you to some actions that you might like to take to help launch the book, um, he, uh, he's got a great website that gives you social media, um, links and materials for that. And tonight we're also going to be looking at, um, talking with you periodically. Like I mentioned before we started, you can submit questions in the question and answer tab on the webcast. And you can also press star two to raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question tonight. And we'll we'll pause periodically, Zach, um, so that we can can um, really have a circle here tonight of community. So without further ado, um, in honor of Sujata and Van and Brian and Ella and all of our teachers and people who've inspired us, um, yourself included, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Molly. It's really an honor. Uh, I, I appreciate you so much and 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 just honored to be able to talk with you all. well Zach if you're willing um, to start us out tonight uh, I know in your in the book of course we keep us safe you start out by sharing a very personal story of trauma and harm yeah and I'm wondering if you could, yeah. could even take it back a little further even before sure. that story to what inspired you to yeah. work so dedicatedly right on I appreciate that question um, you know, in many ways, my own history follows the history of mass incarceration in the state of California. Um, before I was born in the 60s, California was actually investing in a level of social safety net. They, there, were a, there was a civil rights movement that was fighting to, to ensure that those benefits were more equitably shared. And then this big recession hit in 1973 that changed that dynamic. And I was born in 1977, just as the prison guard union began to sell prisons to politicians as the fundamental uh, uh, building uh, site of public safety. They said, if we locate prisons in Fresno and Tulare and places across California, then you're going to have increased infrastructure and you're going to have job opportunities. And and unfortunately, we got what we paid for. Uh, we saw the, the building of 20 new prisons from 1980 to 2000 and just one new university. We went from near first in education in terms of uh, a countrywide leadership as California to being near dead last in terms of our educational offerings for young people. And this impacted families across the state, including mine. I have a, a father who lost his job and ended up cleaning um, juvenile halls, and that's what he does now. I have cousins who work um, inside the prison system and also cousins who are 
incarcerated. And as I have come of age, one thing that has been really top of mind for me is that the civil rights movement, the black freedom movements of the past weren't about half of my family watching the other half. They were about real freedom and liberation and redemption and opportunities for people to make mistakes but still be held um, in community. And so seeing the way in which young people were treated so differently um, uh, when I was an undergrad at Harvard um, versus um, how young people were treated in my neighborhood in East Oakland, often for doing some of the same things, getting involved in fights, using and abusing drugs, um, whereas students at Harvard got, you know, a semester off. They got counseling and support. Uh, folks in my neighborhood got jail time or prison time. And that disparity is what led me to be interested in this concept of Books Not Bars. I heard about this organization called the Ella Baker Center and really started off as a law school student intern. Uh, and I have been involved with the Ella Baker Center ever since then. Um, and yeah, that's how I, I came to this work. Would you be willing to share with us uh, just a little bit about the story that that really is a powerful framework that introduces us yeah. into the book? Yeah. Well, I want to say that um, one of the things that kept me connected to this work was this idea that we could be successful and seeing us be successful. And so as a law school student intern at the Ella Baker Center, I was first in involved in a campaign to stop the construction of what would have been the largest per capita juvenile hall in the country. Alameda County, home to Oakland and Berkeley, which is known to be progressive, around the turn of the century wanted to build a juvenile hall that would have been larger than Chicago's Cook County Ju Juvenile Hall, which has like five times as many people as Alameda County. And in our very basic messaging, we said this is going to be too big, too far, and too racist. And we waged a campaign. Um, we organized. We had T-shirts. We did poetry slams. We interrupted the, the Board of Supervisors meeting, and we were actually successful in moving them to downsize and relocate this juvenile hall. And that was a first taste of success for me as an organizer and, and helped me stay committed to this work. As you mentioned, I fought with the Center for Juvenile and Criminal Justice, the Youth Justice Coalition, among so many other families and young people to fight to close five youth prisons across the state of California. And we continued to see a decline in youth crime during that campaign. So it was a win for human rights in terms of young people not being subjected to 23-hour-day isolation in youth prison cells, and it was a win for public safety. Um, and, you know, I was doing that work as an advocate and as an organizer, and we always talked about books not bars and jobs not jails, housing and healthcare not handcuffs, and, you know, we had our signs, and we would go out there and be very righteous um, and do that work of organizing and activism. And something changed for me um, after I became a dad. And one experience in particular changed things irrevocably for me. And that was right after we bought our home in Oakland, super excited to even be able to buy a home in Oakland in 2013. And my wife and I had moved in. We had two little ones. Um, and we were about six months in uh to being in the house, I went away for a short um, break to see uh, my partner's family, and we come back, and our house had been broken into. And I remember going to my daughter's room and picking up a giant shard of glass and holding it in my hand and picking it up from my daughter's bed um, and thinking about what it would have meant if my daughters had been home when this happened. And then also having to grapple with 
how to communicate what happened to my kids who were just toddlers at the time. Um, thankfully, Rita Alfred, who's also an amazing restorative justice provider, person, mentor, um, came and talked to our kids. But even after doing that, even having those conversations with them, they still had a really difficult time just going downstairs to their room. And that continues actually to this very day in terms of how they relate to this home. And so for me, I started to think to myself, how do we talk about safety in ways that everyone can relate to, in ways that my neighbors who are just down the street from me can relate to, and I can be in a conversation with them um, and explain mm -hmm. to them the amazing work that is possible with restorative justice, the amazing work that is possible when we adopt a public health approach to safety, and we're not yet communicating that in ways that will allow us to take advantage of this political moment in front of us. So that's really part of what led me to mm. writing this book. You say, despite all the talk about public safety, there is very little public in our safety system. I just love that. I, mm. <laughs> that that's a powerful way to start the book. Um, I want to yeah. welcome everybody I mean, and that's who's just joining us. Go ahead. I was just going to say that's since because. the inception of the criminal injustice system, it's really been rooted in slavery and in othering. As Brian Stevenson says, slavery didn't end, it evolved into um, mm -hmm. this criminal court system that we have. And because of that, there isn't very much public. There's a lot of scapegoating and othering. And the book really talks about how we move from that framework of fear to actually adopting a culture of care and really bringing the public back mm -hmm. to public safety. In just a moment, we're gonna ha I'm going to ask you if you'd be willing to unpack that framework of fear because you really outline some critical areas that are involved in what you mean by the framework of fear and sure. how we move out of it. So um, before we go further, though, I just want to welcome people who are just joining us. We're talking with Zach Norris author of We Keep Us Safe, Building Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities. Zach's book launches next week, February 4th, and I'm encouraging everybody to check out more about the Ella Baker Center, um, which is behind so much of Zach's great work, um, zachnorris.com, as well as ellabakercenter.org, have information about the book launch, and um, inviting people to RSVP also uh, around that February 4th launch. So um, I know we have people here from Canada and North America, and then this will drop as a podcast within the next week or less. So if you, of course, are listening to it after the fact as a podcast, make sure people know about it, especially next week, to help really build momentum and help from the ground up in this book launch. Thank you so much, everybody. And just again, a quick reminder, we are taking questions tonight. This is a community forum for you. We're grateful that you're here live. So press star two if you wanna raise your hand at any time, or you can also submit a question in the Q&A tab on the webcast. So we were talking about community safety and um, that brilliant quote about there's not a lot of public in um, our safety system. and one of your other quotes about the threat to our safety um, looks towards the kind of the, the, the systemic piece of where we're going. And um, I want to read it and then ask you a question just about the premise of the book, if you would sum it up for us before we go more deeply into some of the, um, the concepts of the context of fear and um, moving to to systems of care and what that means and what you've seen as well. Um, so you say, the real threats to our safety are not coming from a few bad apples. They simultaneously come from powerful, massive institutions and isms, racism, capitalism, that we all have a hand in upholding and from within our own families and communities. Yeah, and I mean, so, one of the things that I... Sorry, go ahead. No, please, please. Yeah, I was just going to say one of the things that I try to do in the book is distinguish between crime and harm. 
the way in which we think about crime tends to be limited and limiting um, and doesn't really get to those institutional harms that are wrought throughout our society from those isms that you mentioned, as well as interpersonal harms that exist within families and sometimes exist behind closed doors. And I think that there's an opportunity to actually expand our understanding of what harm is, how it comes about, and how we address it. Um, and that really is the subject of the book, is to move us from this framework of fear that really scapegoats some individuals while missing out the, in the, the ways in which, you know, these institutions have been responsible for a lot of harm in all of our lives. Like before I bought the house that I'm now standing in, we almost lost our home to foreclosure um, as a result of, you know, um, institutional failures and people um, allowing a greedy few to profit off of housing instability um, and not really accounting for the harm that they had caused to so many people. And, and of course, we know that African Americans were hurt first and worst by the housing crisis. So those kinds of large-scale harm, harms are being unaddressed, but also as has more recently come to, to light, gender-based harms and the harms against women and gender non-conforming folks has been swept under, under the rug for far too long as well. And so I think that there's an opportunity by adopting a different framework and understanding that we all make mistakes and doing the work of restorative justice that the restorative justice that you all have been leading, that we have an opportunity to really visualize these strategies. Um, mm. And if I were to sum up the, the book in one sentence, I would say that it's really, you know, about the fact that when we take care of the public, we take care of public safety. Mm. Mm -hmm. What really struck me, um, thank you so much, Zach, um, is just the the deeper level that you take us to, and and it links directly to what we call the restorative justice movement. And if I may just mention that one of the big conversations that probably many of you have noticed is how important restorative practices are directly to what you mentioned of creating um, the, you know, the context of care, the communities of co-ownership. Um, by what we mean um, by connection circles, community building processes that are regular and that provide people a place to to be in circle together. Um, it's it's actually a part of what we call the restorative justice movement that sometimes chances being overlooked because we think of restorative justice as conflict related. And of course, I'm speaking from my perspective, and certainly. Um, that is, has its limitations. But in talking with people in this movement for many, many years, it appears that we're just coming to this understanding, especially but not limited to schools, that building a classroom connection system significantly increases our ability to um, create restorative climates, to, to create communities of care. And um, so I absolutely. just wanted to mention that and, and hear your thoughts. Like, what are you seeing yeah, around people's perception of, the, of restorative justice and how is it playing out yeah. in, uh, in prevention? One of the things that I describe in the book is really directly connected to what you just said, which is I lift up the work of Californians for Justice who have called for relationship-centered schools, acknowledging that with the survey they did, only, I think, one in three um, students said that they could identify a, a, a caring adult who could relate to them or something really abysmal in terms of uh, a statistic. And I think that you're right. It's, it's not just about conflict. It's really about building relationship and community to start. Because we have a society that has valorized greed and has, in a lot of ways, valorized disconnection. Um, 
one of the things we do as an organization every year at the Ella Baker Center is put forward a vision and an event that we call Night Out for Safety and Liberation with a lot of other community-based organizations every year. This past year, we had about 35 cities participate. And basically, we're um, trying to create kind of a counterpoint to National Night Out. And Night Out, National Night Out has traditionally been a night where the police come out, they meet neighbors, and they say, you are the eyes and ears of the police. Um, you, you help keep uh, community safe. And as, respectfully, I would offer that each of us has more than just eyes and ears. We have hearts, hands, and minds. And we need to bring our hearts and minds to actually creating community safety. Um, and that means, you know, mentoring someone who is a young person who is, is seeking to do well and, and maybe trying to move away from um, a past life of crime. That means um, providing job opportunities for formerly incarcerated people. That means really investing in not watching our neighbors, but really seeing our neighbors and um, building relationship and community and beloved community as you all describe and um, as Dr. King has described. So that sort of relationship piece is a, a key focus of the book. And it, it basically, in the book, I describe this kind of framework of fear. And one of the aspects of that is isolation and how do we move to real relationship and community because the criminal injustice system has been so predicated upon removing people and isolating people, um, which is really um, counterproductive as it relates to accountability because you can't answer to someone. You can't respond if you are in relationship. So when we sever relationship, we really um, inhibit a real accountability from happening, as you all know. So those are some things that I think will be familiar to this audience, and I'm really trying to kind of bring um, some of those concepts to um, the communities that I work with and, and folks who are on the kind of organizing and advocacy side of things. Mm. And you and what you're describing is um, under that framework of fear. The isolation was one of three uh, foundations that maybe we can come back to in just a moment um, and talk a little bit more about. Sure. I know we have a few questions coming in, and um, if it's all right with you, Zach, let's pause and take a question from the the Q and A tab. Um, thank you, Great. everyone, and please keep them coming in. All you have to do is cruise on over to the webcast page and submit your question at the Q&A tab, or if you'd prefer to ask um, a brief question live, um, you're more than welcome to do that as well. This is your forum. So I want to thank everybody um, from North America and Canada tonight for being with us, and for those of you in different time zones globally, I hope you're enjoying this podcast. So um, thank you, Albert. He asks, since crime has become so profitable with the increase of for-profit prisons, police recruitment, and more police state activity. How do you see restorative justice turning this profit-oriented system around for a more just society? Right on. I think that's a, a really great question, and I think it is a complex question that doesn't have a sort of single silver, silver bullet kind of solution or um, just one unified solution. I think it involves as I describe in the book, moving away from a framework of fear, which is predicated on punishment, surveillance, isolation, and also deprivation. And deprivation really being um, critical to that because what we've seen in California is, as I've described, a move away from supporting education and supporting um, a real social safety net and a move towards uh, incarceration first strategies to what are really public health issues. Um, and so our work as an organization at the Ella Baker Center has really been about moving resources to say, hey, sheriff and probation department, you all can't have all of these public safety dollars. We are going to wage a campaign to move resources away from uh, these kind of lock them up for strategies towards restorative justice, 
towards job opportunities for the formerly incarcerated. And we've had real success here in Alameda County where we were able to move $10 million annually away from the Sheriff and Probation Department towards supports for folks who have been involved in in the criminal justice system. And one of the things that I want to bring to your attention is that there is this kind of growing common sense that mass incarceration is a, po- a problem. So all of the Democratic candidates in the United States are saying um, we oppose mass incarceration. Even Donald Trump um, worked on some legislation, the First Step Act, that resulted positively in, in many people coming home. Now, that doesn't mean that we can just um, believe that things are going to turn in the right direction on their own. Um, we have to continue waging those campaigns to move resources, but I also think that we need to expand the public imagination. And by that, I mean um, we need to really visibilize restorative justice as a practice. Um, one of the things that we're doing here in Oakland with support of restorative justice for Oakland youth and community works and other great restorative justice organizations is we've created a dedicated space for restorative justice here in Oakland in a building that we call Restore Oakland. And this building is home to restorative justice. It's also home to economic opportunity. Um, on the first floor of this building is a restaurant. That will be run by formerly incarcerated folks and others who have been locked out of opportunity, worker training programs for people to access career ladder jobs in the restaurant industry, and organizing so that we can also hold elected officials accountable to this vision of books, not bars, and jobs, not jails. And I think that that building, that physical space, is really super important because prisons and um Profiteering has have come to dominate what people think of when they think of safety, and and if we're going to be successful, we have to um, be able to point to a different vision. Just as you know, wind turbines and solar panels were important to be able to imagine a new energy future. I think that um, places like Restore Oakland and this building that we have. Um, visibilizing restorative justice practices will be incredibly important to actually moving to a new justice future in this country. Mm. Such potent outpicturing of these concepts. These are a lot of great concepts, but but they're in, they're enacted. You, you're you're putting them into action in collaborative with an extraordinary network of commu- committed citizens and community members in Oakland. And I'm wondering if there's a way for people to find more out about Restore Oakland and if there's like a a way for people to understand further about how you got that model rolling and how how it's now being built. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Folks can go to restoreoakland.org. It's all one word to learn about that space. I'm really grateful to Deanna Van Buren at Designing Justice, Designing Spaces, who helped design the space, BBI Construction, Mm. who helped build it, Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth and Community Works, who are really leading the restorative justice um, in this space. And uh, there's a really cool City Lab article um, about Restore Oakland that I think is a, a good kind of primer in terms of what we're up to. Um, at Restore Mm -hmm. Oakland. So I encourage people to check that out. The basic quote was something along the lines of a justice system that is actually just and a service economy that actually serves the people. And that's what we're aiming to um, build with Restore Oakland. Mm. I just want to add my appreciation to Dr. Tayasha Bankhead uh, of Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth and Fania Davis, who... I, and all the people that are on that extraordinary team, whether they're currently there or right. were leaders and way showers of that team, um, what a template and um, what a 
a group of people really showing the way for the rest of the world, really. I, I view them as, um, and, and you're, you know, you as well, as really showing the way that this can be done. So um, let's, let's go back yeah. for another question. Um, Carolina, on that note, asks, um, and thank you, Carolina, for your question. Um, all the concepts resonate with me. What are some concrete steps to begin? And, of course, I, I was going to ask you that question, but she got to it first. <laughs> so let's, right on. Let's hear yeah, I really, what your thoughts are on I that. Really I really appreciate the question. I think we're moving the vision in action in a lot of different ways. So one is the 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 space and the place of Restore Oakland, where that restorative justice work um, is being led by Tiasha Bankhead and other folks who are doing incredible work and are, um, as you mentioned, Molly, internationally re renowned and on the continent in Africa and, and other places and spaces really doing amazing work. They, along with Community Works, are getting referrals from the probation department, from the district attorney, and holding circle and holding people accountable, but also holding them in community, ensuring that young people don't have a record show up, but that they are actually accountable to the folks that they've harmed. Um, and so that's playing out on a daily basis at Restore Oakland. My partner herself had her laptop snatched right behind the building. Um, she was mugged, but, you know, she started running after this guy who stole her laptop. Two other guys ran after um, this person. They were able to catch up with them, um, bring the laptop back. Uh, we wanted to really hold a restorative justice circle with this person. We weren't, uh, unfortunately, able to do that. We, we learned the, the following day that the, um, the house where we thought this person had come out of, they were actually being evicted. So it was this kind of example of um, the harms happen earlier than we, we think, right? And if we just focus on that one incident, we're really missing a larger picture. And what I'm excited about in terms of Restore Oakland is we aren't, you know, just doing the, the, the circles when um, we get referrals from law enforcement. We're also circling up and thinking about what harm does gentrification have in, within Oakland and how do we partner with Casa Husa Just Cause, who's also in the building, to advance the kind of housing, not handcuffs agenda. So we're doing some of the circle keeping and community work at Restore Oakland, but we're also doing some of the organizing and advocacy to really change the conditions. And the last concrete example that I'll give is the work of Devon Bogan in Richmond, California, who works with Advanced Peace. Um, and he developed a fellowship program uh, for folks within Richmond who were believed to be responsible for most of the homicides within the city. And that fellowship program provided daily mentorship. It provided a monthly stipend. It provided travel opportunities for these young men, um, opportunities for them to understand um, the, the way in which harm was playing out in their communities, but also an opportunity for them to be part of the solution, to help break down the barriers across neighborhoods. And as a result of the success of that fellowship program, violence in Richmond decreased by some 70%. Homicides decreased by 70%. And that was a huge victory, not just for those young men, but really for the city as a whole, as business owners were able to keep their doors open longer and, and mothers and grandmothers were able to take their kids to the park without, without being in fear. Um, that's what happens when we actually adopt a culture of care and we, when we look to all of our neighbors as being potentially part of the solution as opposed to just scapegoating folks and saying you're the problem without looking at the the real long history of racial injustice that is present in place like places like Richmond, California and Richmond, Virginia and so many cities across the country. Mm. It's it appears that when we hold safe space for accountability and for safety uh, for all involved that is guided by those who have experienced and received harm and in responding to their needs 
in an appropriate way, in a safe way, we can go to that place that you're mentioning of the greater context that is the, the what you point to throughout this book, the, the recycling of harm and trauma. You talk about patriarchy. You talk about um, the continued racism, um, the, the pandemic of mental health being um, waylaid into our prison system um, where there's no treatment, um, LGBTQIA+, being outcast and othered, um, and, you know, all of these issues that if we can, you know, can really look at um, ways to bring it back to the simplicity of relationship and understanding within a context of safety. Um, from my perspective, being in this field, the, the, this is one of the only ways we can get from that fear to uh, communities of care and be real with one another. Um, That's right. And I, I, I think it's very interesting. You, you t again, you talk about these these contexts in a way that really help us to maybe de-shame from. Like, we we have a tendency in this culture to shame and um, mm -hmm. really have this this individual shaming going on, othering and shaming. Um, and you talk about the architects of anxiety, and I'm wondering yeah. if if we could go back to that for a minute before we run out of time tonight. We have a, another, I'd say, 15 minutes to the top of the hour. Um, welcoming questions still, please, if people would like to get involved in the conversation. But if uh, yeah. if you if you could yeah, talk absolutely. about what so what are the architects of anxiety? What are they? How do they yeah, inform? The architects are of anxiety are those um, predominantly politicians, but not always, um, who are leveraging fear um, in order to build a platform for themselves and to um, promote themselves as being those who um, keep us safe. Um, so the president who is in office currently, I think, is a, a really great example where he is scapegoating communities and individuals. Sometimes those are the our neighbors around the block, and sometimes those folks are neighbors in distant lands who he is saying, these people are the problem. I will protect you from them. Um, meanwhile, he's really disguising a lot of the ongoing harms associated with poverty, with inequality, um, with the different institutional isms that, are described in the book and that you talked about um, and kind of dividing and distracting us. This isn't new. People know this this kind of musical chairs of oppression that have happened in this country for a very long time. But one of the things that I think is interesting about the book is that I, tra I trace a few different stories in the latter half of the book in terms of how particular individuals were impacted by this othering. Um, one um, example is that of Darrell Feaster, who um, suffered abuse under the California Youth Authority youth prison system. And this is the time in which youth of color in particular were being demonized and scapegoated as youth super, super predators. And I imagine what um, a difference it would have made for him and his parents if there was a culture of care in place. If his father, Alan Feaster, rest in power, Alan, um, had the kind of support that he needed to to um, to provide uh, a safe space for his own son, so that rather than you know um, you know Alan is someone who lost his son inside of the California Youth Authority youth prison system. And Alan was so courageous that he adopted all of the other youth inside of that youth prison system um, and went on to fight with us for the closure of youth prisons and the redirection of resources back to real um, support for young people. But Alan should never have lost his, his son. Um, and what I try to do is retell some really tragic stories in ways that I hope illustrate what's possible when we kind of adopt a culture of care and we come and we move away from this framework of fear. And I hope that, you know, folks find real positive interventions and and really concrete policy solutions. I'm not focusing on those in this talk, but I think in the book you'll find 
a whole kind of panoply of different ways in which we can be moving towards this culture of care. Right. I just want to add to that that you do talk um, at length with with the anecdotes, one of which you just shared a bit, a bit about. Um, in Chapter 4, it's, it's all about prevention tools, and you make quite a lot um, of really meaty, practical recommendations. So for those of you who, are, who might be curious about, okay, we're talking about concepts. Well, Zach's also making some very specific recommendations in the book and lines those up at the end of each of the anecdotes um, in the latter part of the book. Uh, did you want to say about uh, anything about that? We have some more questions that no, I'd like to come to. I mean, just real quickly, I'll say that that's intentional. I think we have to do a better job as a movement of being storytellers because Mm -hmm. um, the folks who are using a framework of fear are able to tap into stories very readily in ways that um, all of our policy prescriptions won't undo. And um, restorative justice folks are doing amazing work, and I think we need to be better at really telling the stories of the work that we do um, such that we can um, have a counterpoint to some of those really simplistic stories that folks are, are, are telling in terms of the framework of fear. Mm. And one more thing about relationships before the next question. It seems so obvious, but um, it just in honor of um, BB, otherwise known as Dr. Beverly Title, who was a, a way shower here in Colorado where I'm sitting right now in the field of restorative justice and also in, in bullying prevention, um, she coined the five R's of restorative justice, which begin, you know, the first R is relationship. And um, right. so, so that piece, when, when some of you might be scratching your head, uh, not knowing how many of you are directly in the field or interested in stepping into it, I know from our pre-registration survey, it sounds like most people are involved at some level in restorative justice within your community, region, or beyond. But really, the relationship building is the first place. Um, Restore Oakland didn't happen because um, it just kind of popped up out of thin air. It, it was built um, in the blood, sweat, and tears of a lot of real conversations, I'm sure, cross-community right. with a lot of people right. who had a common interest. So um, one of the things I love to just share is listening. <laughs> listening um, builds relationships, listening to needs. So let's go. Let's go back to questions. Um, and thank you, Jan. Jan, you are totally keyed into some of the topics towards the end of the book um, that Zach goes more deeply into. Although you mention this piece quite a bit throughout the book, which is uh, addressing the harms of gentrification and specifically to creating more affordable housing. So um, again, I got beat to my question about housing justice. And, um, you know, you talk also, Zach, in the book about, you know, I, it's just, it's horrible to think about what happened to the city of San Francisco and subsequently to Oakland. And what, what are the ways that we can, can um, go in a, a much different direction with this issue of a lack of housing, a universal basic human right? Well, first of all, I just want to lift up the incredible work that four black mothers, along with Ace and Carol Fife, um, have done in really um, demonstrating that housing is a human right and uh, fighting for a home for their, their own children, um, not just folks across Oakland, but people really across the country have been inspired by their fight. Um, one of the stories that I lift up in the book is the story of Anita um, de Assis Midali, who has been doing incredible work supporting unsheltered communities um, throughout Oakland. And, you know, this is an issue that hits home for me as well as someone who almost lost my home to uh, foreclosure. I, I think, you know, it's really quite simple. Like when you look at, um, 
what will solve the unsheltered crisis is actually putting people in homes, in permanent homes. Um, and we don't yet have the political will to do that. That has to be built. That has to be built through organizing. It has to be built through advocacy. It has to be built through the incredible community building work that you all are doing to bring folks together so people see one another for real and aren't just kind of labeling one another. Um, and one of the things that I uh, describe in the book is the way in which the criminal justice system has been used as a, as a sorting system to label entire communities as undeserving. And I think the work of building restorative justice and building community, um, when we are able to show that each of us is more than our worst mistake, then we'll start to see uh, larger investment in in housing. Um, and one of the things that I'm excited about um, is I think the work of Restore Oakland, the work of the Black Cultural Zone in Oakland, um, the work of John Jones in Oakland um, is pointing the way to uh, collective ownership of land to make sure that housing can be protected as a human right. And by being able to buy and own our own space as a kind of collective of nonprofits and to be able to be pitching in to collectively steward that space at Restore Oakland, I think it's an example of the way in which we should be um, uh, collectively stewarding more land within our cities to make sure that housing is respected as a human right. The work that's happening in Jackson, Mississippi, um, where they have uh, the, the, in partnership with community-based organizations and the government went ahead of gentrification and said, we see where this is going. We're going to buy this block and turn it back to the community. That's the kind of inspiration that we need. And it is actually happening in places across the country. We just need to visibilize it and to bring it to scale. Mm. Thank you. As we uh, move towards the top of the hour, stay with us. Keep asking the questions. If you have more, bring those on in. You can also press star 2 to raise your hand if you'd like to ask a live question. And um, one of the things that, that has really been, I think, on probably many of our minds comes back to bringing uh, a sense of community ownership and interconnection um, as the way towards creating the kinds of communities and systems that we vision. And, um, and really, the fact that that can't be done just by one person, you know, a president yep. or a leader. And I'm wondering yep. if you would be willing to speak to your thoughts on what appears to be a tendency, a human tendency to place all our hopes in one leader to change the system of, of fear to yeah. one of care. You, you mention yeah. all the time throughout this amazing book, the us versus them began long before the current administration. So how are we responsible yeah. for advancing a politic of saviorhood versus reclaiming our collective accountability? Mm -hmm. It's such a powerful question, and I really appreciate it. And I think it's an important one to keep in mind with this upcoming presidential election. Uh, and, you know, I think we have to go back to what is democracy and what, um, what does it mean to actually have a community? Because, uh, as I said, Donald Trump is kind of putting forward this vision of I'm the protector and I will keep you safe. Um, and really fundamentally that is the opposite of democracy. Democracy isn't built on easy conversations. It's built on the kind of difficult and challenging conversations that many of you all as circle keepers are holding. Uh, and we, in this kind of soundbite culture, this quick fix culture, I think um, really pin our hopes on saviors and on um, easy solutions. 
And it isn't easy to do the work of, um, of visibilizing restorative justice, but it's absolutely necessary. And if there's a challenge that I have for this group, it would be how do you um, visibilize the messy work of bringing communities together and building community? Because if you think about a courtroom space, right, um, there's a judge up on high, there's a, a defendant and a plaintiff, and there's a very ordered um, dynamic to it. You can't just go into a, a courtroom and have a sandwich or have a beer. It's held sacrosanct in a particular way. And it's a very adversarial process in ways that kind of reinforce this kind of savior dynamic that we're describing. Um, but it has a particular logic that is memorable. And I think we need to figure out how to make restorative justice memorable. And that means both being creative about how we're doing it differently in this present moment, but also being tapping into the wisdom and tradition and our ancestors who have been doing restorative justice for eons um, before it was even called that. So that um, is a, for me, kind of a provocation to the group is it is important for us to be doing the work. I also think it's important for us to be thinking about how we communicate this work because more people need to know about it. Um, and, and, and we need to be reminding people of, of the way in which relationship is what really keeps us safe, not individual saviors. Mm. I want to make a, an invitation to everyone tonight to please join in. If you happen to be in the Oakland area, there's a We Keep Us Safe book launch. That's February 4th at 6 p.m. Restore Oakland, which is uh, on 34th Avenue. There's more information about the events surrounding next Tuesday's launch of We Keep Us Safe at ZachNorris.com. Really would love to hear from you. I know at pre-registration, many of you indicated you might be interested in spreading the word to your networks. Even just a quick tweet or a social media post would be awesome. They have prefabricated tweets and um, posts that you can just grab and post and paste and just want to encourage everybody to um, continue the conversation and definitely pick up a copy of We Keep Us Safe as of Tuesday and I, I believe pre-orders are available right now as well through ZachNorris.com right. um, at independent booksellers online and um, also at EllaBakerCenter.org. Zach, is there anything else um, that you would like to leave us with tonight? Any closing comments, uh, thoughts? Yeah, just briefly, if you're not in Oakland, we're also having book events in D.C., in Boston, Philadelphia, and, and other cities, so please uh, check ZachNorris.com. Uh, would love to see you at a book event. Um, and I would just leave folks with a thought. Um, if I asked you to kind of close your eyes and remember a time when you felt safe. A lot of times it is um, a, a time and a space when we were in relationship. I, in particular, think about the way in which my grandmother kind of held my hand and the way she held me accountable, um, but always with love. And I think if we can um, help people remind um themselves what what really keeps us safe um then we're half of the way there because the architects of anxiety those greedy few who are kind of moving forward this agenda of fear want us to forget um those moments want us to forget our connection to each other but i think if we take a moment and take a breath um, we can remember that and help others remember that. And that's the work that I think we're all called to do. Zach, we have covered great ground tonight with you, and it's an extraordinary honor to be with you and with everyone else tonight. Um, I want to encourage people to, again, take part in the book launch and to check out an event in your area, look Look at ZachNorris.com for all that info. 
that I've described. And please visit restorativejusticeontherise.org. I'm Molly Rowan Leach, and thank you so much for being a global community with us. This is your forum. Thank you for helping us launch our 2020 dialogues, and we'll see you very soon for another one. Good night, everybody, and thank you. Thank you, Zach.